All right. As we watch the world around us, it's changing at an ever-increasing rate. Some days it seems like the, the end is fast approaching, right? It's, it just keeps getting crazier and crazier. Some days, you know, it seems like we're close to societal collapse or banking collapse, uh, national collapse. But really, I mean, every generation thinks this. When I was 17, I'm like, I don't need to figure out a job because the world's going to end like next week, right? <laughs> I ha- I'm, still gonna, I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. But uh, every generation thinks this, right? They, they, the world continues to spin. As Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. But we know that tomorrow isn't promised to anyone. And whether the world is headed for collapse or, Lord willing, headed for revival, our time on earth is uncertain. This truth hit our church about a month ago. As I stood outside George Miranda Jr.'s home, the day that God called him home, And I prayed for comfort, and I prayed for strength and peace for his family. As his family was delivering the devastating news to the youngest brother, the overwhelming thought that I had was, there's no more messing around. This is real. Time is short, and we have a lot of work to do. No more messing around. So that's my heart and desire to challenge you today. I want to challenge our perceptions of our walks. I want to challenge us to examine our lives and what we are doing with the gifts God's given us. As it is often said, I want to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That's my job this morning. I want us to ask ourselves if we are using those comforting verses as an excuse for inaction. The title of this message is, You Believe in God, So What? You believe in God, so what do we believe? You believe in God, so what does that mean? You believe in God, so what are you going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Let's uh, go into James 2.19. You believe in that God is one, You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So this verse caught my attention last summer. uh, Daniel was doing a message on on theology of James, and he'd asked me a question about demons, and uh, I went off on a rabbit trail that he didn't use. But uh, it got me thinking about, I I never really had thought about it, but even the demons believe. So I've, I've returned to this verse throughout the last few months. Considering what it means, what it says about our lives, what it says about our beliefs, what it says about our walks. So, what do we believe? We have an awesome God. He has an excellent plan. He's an all-powerful, all-knowing, omnipresent God. He manifests himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He created light and the universe 
and spoke our world into being. He created the first man and the first woman. And then they disobeyed God's simple instruction. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they were cursed, and they were expelled from paradise. This curse spread to every one of us, every man and every woman that's ever lived. We are condemned to eternal separation from God because of that curse. We can't do anything on our own to remove that curse or its condemnation. We are all in need of redemption and a savior. So good news. God had a plan for that from the beginning. God sent his only son, Jesus, to live a sinless life die an excruciating death and rise from the dead to conquer sin, death, and our curse. Jesus was fully God. Jesus was fully man. Jesus made a way to the Father through his life on earth and his work on the cross. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to have a relationship with him, to live a life of obedience and service, and sacrifice. We have an awesome God. So these truths are the foundation of our faith, the basic essentials of the gospel, the good news on how a person knows that they're saved. And you may be thinking to yourself, oh, yeah, I've been coming here. This is great. I know all these things. These are the truths. I know, I know how I'm saved. And you'd be right. You've likely chosen this church specifically because it teaches the Bible line by line, Precept by precept. Correct doctrine is important. Don't get me wrong. Correct doctrine is important. A church that teaches the whole truth and nothing but the truth is essential to our walks. But accurate beliefs alone won't get you there. It's only the beginning. What sets us apart from the demons who also believe these things? You believe God is one and you do well. James is telling us, as he's writing to the Jews, uh, he's writing to the religious people of the day, that they're putting their trust in law and doctrine. He's telling them, your carefully crafted understanding of doctrine is not enough. Your faithful adherence to a creed is not going to save you. The The demons believe all these things. Their belief and understanding are so strong that they tremble. They shudder. They understand the vast, awesome, powerful, just, righteous God that they are dealing with. So what, do, what does the scripture say that demons believe? First up, uh, demons believe in God. They believe in one God. They believe in our God. As we've been going through James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. James here is referring to the Shema found in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The the demons believe in one God. It might be better to say they know he is one God. Being fallen angels, they've been around since before the fall of man. So it isn't really a belief or a faith for them, right? It's history. They lived it. Jesus affirms the importance 
of this in uh, Mark 12, 29. He's answering a question from the, a religious scholar who's asked, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus answers, uh, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So the demons know and understand our God. Secondly, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. There are many examples in Scripture where demons are knowing and professing that Jesus is the Son of God. I'm going to give you a couple. Uh, Mark 3, 11 and 12. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make it known. So early in Jesus' public ministry, he wasn't ready to, to, to reveal himself as the Messiah to the public. Um, he wasn't re- ready to reveal himself as the Son of God. And Son of God to the Jews is equal with Messiah. Yet the demons were already proclaiming it here. Mark 5, 7 says, um, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, This um, being a demon... What have you to do with me? Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So the, the demons knew who Jesus was and why he was here. The demons also believe that Jesus is the way to salvation. Acts 16, 16 and 17. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these, men's are, these men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So we have Paul and Silas, and then Luke is along at this point, and they encounter this demon-inhabited slave girl. Luke, who's the author of Acts, who's writing this, and also the Gospel of Luke, um, gives us a first-hand account. So this isn't somebody telling him. He witnessed this. A first-hand account of a demon knowing that Jesus is the way to salvation. Next up, demons believe in Jesus' authority and of their future judgments. Mark 1, 23 and 24. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know, you, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Even though their boss, Satan, is the father of lies, right? There's no pretense here. There's no attempt at bluffing or defiance. He's not puffing himself up saying, I can handle you. There's only cowering in fear. Just an acknowledgement of the authority and the power of the Holy One of God. This demon's not messing with Jesus. He knows who he's dealing with. Luke eight thirty and 31, Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. The same event is detailed in Matthew. It gives a little more detail in Matthew 8, 9, 8, 29. And behold, they cried, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So the demons recognized Jesus as their judge. We see their belief, their knowledge of Jesus, who he is, and even the expected timeline of future events. So while the, while the demons aren't all-knowing, they've been around since uh, before we got here. 
And they know, they know how things went down, right? They know God's plan and how it ends. They're doing what they can to take as much ground now uh, for their boss and before the inevitable, their inevitable loss and judgment. Scripture gives us no examples of a doubting Thomas demon. There are no doubters in that, in that camp. They believe there's no doubt. They believe in one God. They believe in Jesus as the Son of God and Messiah. In Jesus as the way to salvation. In Jesus as authority, as judge. And they believe in their inevitable judgment. So they believe all these things that we hold to and we think we're good, but they're still damned to the abyss and eternal torment. So what does that mean for us? Mere belief in correct doctrine does not save the demons, and it will not save us. We need a belief that changes our hearts. It enables repentance and a relationship. A repentance and acknowledgement of our sin and a turning from it. A relationship of our Creator and Savior with our Creator and Savior. It means repentance. We have a sin issue that separates us from the Holy God. We cannot bridge that gap. There's nothing we can do. We have a gap with Jesus. The only thing that can bridge that gap is Jesus' work on the cross. Our hearts are twisted and evil. Without the the transformation faith brings, we're, we're twisted and evil. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Deceitful above all things. The New Living Translation says it in a different way. It says, who really knows how bad it is? I think that's fair. None is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but a free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's not enough to acknowledge Jesus as Savior, as the the demons do. It requires acknowledging our predicament. It requires uh, knowing our cursed and sinful position in the world. And then turning from it. Acknowledge the sin, confess it, and receive forgiveness through the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Repentance, confession, and turning to Jesus for salvation It's not available to the demons. But good news, it's available to all of us, right? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it means means repentance, it means a relationship. A relationship with Jesus is not open to the demons. While we don't deny the cross, while while the demons won't deny the cross, they're not going to celebrate his work on it. They're not able to worship him. We have a Savior we can love and trust 
and delight in. Romans 5.8 But God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We were hopeless and lost and dead in our sins, enemies. But Jesus died for us. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 Our love for Jesus is only possible because he loved us first. By repentance and surrender, we are given the, whole, we, we are given the Holy Spirit. And without that, um, we are not able to love. But the Holy Spirit enables us to love him in return. The relationship allows us to demonstrate our love uh, for him by knowing what is required of us and then putting that into action. So it's not just, I love you, Jesus, and then do what you want. It's knowing what is required of us and putting that into action. John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he, is, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Because of this relationship, we can demonstrate our love and faith by trusting him. We can trust him to protect Psalm 56, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all of our anxieties on him because he cares for us. We can trust him to provide, Matthew 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious for your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And here's where it gets harder. We can trust his plan for our lives. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, who, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream that does not fear and does not fear when he comes. For he leaves, the leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought or it does not cease to bear fruit. So there's going to be times of dryness. There's going to be times when you're like, Lord, where is that rain? This stream is drying up. Are you going to trust his plan for you? Psalm 28, 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. Our hearts set on him. We want the will of God in our lives and desire the things of God, his word, his truths, his people. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, 4. To delight in the Lord, we must take our sights off ourselves, off our own desires, and replace them with his. Think about a longing to see a spouse or a child after extended time away. How about the anticipation of spending time with a good friend you haven't seen in a while? Are we excited to meet with God daily in prayer and his word? He's there for us. He's ready. 
and he's waiting to connect, to move forward in your relationship with him. Do we have an urgency to show our love for him by obeying his commandments? Are the storms that crash into our lives, as the storms that crash into our lives, do we demonstrate a trust in God's plan? Does our life reflect a desire to meet with the Lord in prayer and his word? So that brings us to the hard part. So what are we going to do about it? James 2.17. So also, faith by itself, it does not have works. If it does not have works, it is dead. Let me read it again, because I botched it. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James reiterates this in verse 20 and 26. Dead faith is that of a demon. And that kind of faith cannot save. Good works will not prove you are saved, but the absence of good works proves you're not. Let me say that again. Good works will not prove you are saved, but the absence of good works proves we are not. We must be watchful that the message of grace doesn't lull us into complacency. Where we think, hey, we have, I have salvation. I have my fire insurance, right? And then there's, a, there's no desire to do anything else. Um, Thomas Kempis said this, On the day of judgment, surely we shall not be asked what we have read, but what we have done. Not how well we have spoken, but how well we have lived. We believe, right? So what are we going to do about it? First up, we're going to love others. If we have a delight for the Lord, we should also have a delight for his people. John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So our love for one another should be peculiar. It should be weird to the world. It should be so different from how the rest of the world acts that others will look at us and will know that we've been with Jesus. We will, they will know that we are his disciples. There is no way we're gonna, we have that kind of love for each other unless Jesus enables it. Jesus speaking in John fifteen twelve says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is our example. Jesus is our standard. Matthew six fourteen and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We need to recognize what we've been forgiven. Even in our repentant, empowered by the Holy Spirit, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, new creation, self, we're going to blow it. We're going to offend people, and they're going to offend us. We're going to hurt people, and they're going to hurt us. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
We must remember that mercy that we have been shown needs to be extended to everyone Jesus calls us to love. Is there an out there? Who does Jesus call us to love? Everyone. Our enemies, our friends, everyone. 1 John 4.8 Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So we need to demonstrate our belief with a changed heart that is able to forgive and love those around us. A desire to be with those around us. Next up, what are we going to do about it? We're going to serve. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship, his masterpiece, his poem, his masterfully woven tapestry. God created each of us with specific things for each of us to do. And we're supposed to walk those out. More than that, Ephesians 4, 15, and 16, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. For whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul's using a picture of a body. Each of us has different, we are different parts. We have different functions. And each of us needs to do the function that God has preordained us to do. Otherwise, the body is going to be out of whack. All are working in coordination with each other to accomplish the will of God. Think of it, think of each of us as a musician in an orchestra. Each contributes a different piece to the sound. Each piece of the symphony is one of us. And God is the master conductor. We all have a part, right? We've all got a unique version of that sheet music. And we must work in time with the conductor to avoid missing our opportunities to contribute. You've got this one little solo bit and you were off doing something else and, oh, you can't play it later, before or after. You need to play it when the conductor go says go. Jesus gives us a warning about, miss, about not missing our cues to perform. Matthew seven twenty one through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, Jesus speaking, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So there will be those who think they're saved, but are not. That's what I'm asking you today. They're playing for themselves. 
they have their own tune that doesn't match the symphony. And they're not looking to the conductor. Let that not be us. So we're going to love others, and we're going to serve, and now we're going to sacrifice. Hello, Lord. <laughs> Luke nine twenty three and 24. And he, Jesus speaking, said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. A belief that saves results in a life wholly given over to the things of God. It demands sacrifice, giving up, letting go of what we want, what's desirous to us. We need to let go of what we treasure for the kingdom of God. In 2 Samuel 24, it says this, But the king said to Aruna, king being David, No, but I will not buy it from you for a price. No, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. So David's our example here. When Aruna offered David everything he needed for the sacrifice to the Lord. David refused because he didn't, it wouldn't be a sacrifice if it cost him nothing. I mean, it could be a sacrifice for Aruna, but it wasn't David's sacrifice. If we truly understand what Jesus has done for us, what he asks of us, it'll be a natural outpouring. A natural outpouring empowered by the Holy Spirit, not of us. We can't do this on our own. Can't do it on our own strength. But it'll be a natural outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Natural, but costly. For it isn't sacrifice if it costs us nothing. God calls us to sacrifice our time and our energy and our treasure. Time. It's one of the most valuable resources because it is so limited. What we choose to do with each hour of each day demonstrates and communicates our priorities. We need to be deliberate about our schedules. Set aside and consecrate our hours and days to the Lord. To say yes and dedicate an hour to the Lord, we, that means we're saying no to everything else. Psalm 5.3 O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. To say yes to getting up early, we are sacrificing sleep. But we need a certain amount of sleep, so we don't want to sacrifice too much sleep. So inevitably, you need to look further than that. We need to sacrifice the thing at night so that we have time for sleep, so that we have time to get up in the morning. We need to be intentional with our time to use it best. Giving up those things that we desire for God's will. 1 Peter 4.2 So as to live the rest of time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What is in the way 
of giving him your calendar and your day? What is God calling you to sacrifice? Sacrifice the things that are personal, the things that are desirous of us. Things that we want that have no eternal value. Hebrews 3.13 But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Do it now. We may not have tomorrow. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This isn't... I'm not saying this is easy. This isn't straightforward. But we can pray for wisdom to sacrifice the right things. Some things are easy and obvious to identify, right? Give up an hour of mindless scrolling on social media. Bingo. That's easy. Give up that episode of worldly television that didn't get you anywhere and were annoyed by the time you were done with it. Give up that third, fourth, or tenth game of Call of Duty. Those are easy, right? There are good and necessary things, though, too, right? Work, relationships, family time. So we need to ask for wisdom. All of our calendar, all of our day, need to be brought under the submission and will of God. I'm not saying you need to sacrifice the important things. I'm saying be deliberate and intentional. Figure out what's important. Figure out how to fit it in. Next up, energy. At least for me, it's in limited supply. An act of faith doesn't ask if it's given enough for the day. Did I give enough? I think I gave enough. It doesn't compare itself with others to ensure I gave, I, gave them, I gave enough. I gave what they gave. Or if you're type A, you know, I gave just a little more, right? Because I'm type A. Um, a belief that saves asks, have I given it all? Did I leave it all on the field? We can look at Paul as an example. And just as a reminder, Paul, we don't want to elevate individuals. Paul requested that you imitate him as he imitates Christ. 2 Corinthians twelve fifteen. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Paul reminds us of God's calling to spend and be spent for his kingdom. Not concerning ourselves, whether our efforts matched or others reciprocated. You doing your part? Because I'll do my part if you do your part. That's not what, that's not, that's not it. Philippians 3.14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But that's Paul, right? He's an apostle. He's Paul. Are we called to that same level of commitment? Paul says yes. Philippians, I'm going to read through Philippians 14 again with 15. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise... Let God reveal that also to you. So what is he saying there? I press on toward the goal for the call 
the, the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. So the mature people are going to think that way. The mature are going to be going. And if you disagree with what I'm saying, hopefully God will let me know. That's what he's saying. And I'm saying that. Because I'm just reading the word. Don't take my word for it. So the mature people will think this way. If you disagree, God will reveal it to you. This desire to press on. Last up, on our sacrifice is our treasure. We rarely talk about this at Refuge. The Lord has always provided for our needs here. We have a very generous congregation. But I'd be remiss if I didn't include this. I can't not include this, because this is one of the primary ways we can sacrifice. It's an example and a, a tangible demonstration that our belief, just like the demons had, is different. It's that our, the belief results in our heart being fully submitted to God's will in every aspect of our lives. For many, our wallets and our finances are the last item that we fully put there on the altar. Beginning with Abraham in Genesis, the Old Testament gives us many examples of giving a tithe, a tenth, as a sacrifice. The New Testament doesn't specifically mention tithing, other than Jesus, you know, criticizing the Pharisees because they tithe the mint, the cumin. But the Old Testament doesn't endorse tithing. But I submit to you that it pr- promotes a higher standard. We are likely familiar with 2 Corinthians 9-7, which says, Each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly and under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is one of those verses that I think uh, we rest on when we shouldn't. I'm not happy about giving. I'm going to give. As with everything we've covered today, it points to our heart, our motives, trust, our submission to God's will. God doesn't need our money. As it says in Psalm 50, God owns cattle on a thousand hills. But how often is this verse used to comfort the comfortable? To give us an out instead of exploring what God is directing us to do. The word of God has this to say in Malachi 3, 8, 9. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have I robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Again, an Old Testament reference to tithe, will man rob God? The Bible also teaches the concept of first fruits. Proverbs 3.9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. You can also see Leviticus 23.10. 
Ezekiel 44.30, and Romans 11.16. In biblical times, most of the people were farmers. The concept of first fruits was plain to them. Give the first part as you're doing the harvest, you give that first part. As soon as you're harvested to the Lord. Most of us, I think, except maybe Moses. Oh, he's Moses is in Israel. Most of us no longer have a harvest in the literal sense. But we do get a harvest of our labors in the form of a regular paycheck, commission check, if we're lucky, a bonus check. We don't have the luxury of getting the whole amount because the government takes its portion before it gets to us. There are also insurance deductions, 401k, HSA, FSA, stock programs. Each of those makes our check smaller and smaller and smaller before it ever hits our bank account. That's okay. However, that doesn't prevent us from having that same attitude, having that first fruits attitude, giving to the Lord out of the first of our harvest. The answer is simple. The answer is challenging. If we take our paychecks, there are two numbers, net and gross, right? And of course, it's a matter of the heart and how the Spirit convicts you. But why not give 10% of the biggest number you see? The math also is simple, right? You see $1,000, divide by 10, you get 100. 100 is your tithe. It's a demonstration of faith. But the New Testament doesn't mention tithing. Off the hook. Let's go to Luke 21, 1 through 4. So Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. This one's tough, right? Understanding men's hearts, Jesus knows that the rich men gave more in total, but from their surplus. It is the widow who gives everything. Jesus doesn't go to the box and say, hey, I know you gave it all. Here's your two coins back. He doesn't do that, right? He doesn't say she gave too much. She gave everything, trusting that God would provide for her tomorrow. And I submit to you and me that if there's a standard of giving advocated in the New Testament, this is it. God wants all of our lives. He wants all of our time, all of our energy, all of our treasure. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it, right? I've deliberately taken these two verses slightly out of context so I could save the best for last. So let's revisit those two painful verses one more time. Malachi 3. Will man rob God? 
yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have I robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. The whole nation of you. Here we go. Good stuff. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I'm breaking up because I've seen him work and I've seen him do that. This is the only place in scripture where God asks us to test him. He's telling us to trust him with everything. And then what? Test him and see. If I will not open the windows of heaven. I can't read it again. For you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Second <clears throat> Corinthians 9, 6, 8. The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give, here we go with the comfortable part, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The principle of sowing and reaping is found throughout Scripture and applied here to our giving. Trust God with a little, and you will be blessed a little. Trust God with more and see what he will do. Let me be clear, I'm not advocating prosperity gospel here. There's no guarantee that the bountiful blessings you get will be monetary. God blesses in many ways, but the principle still holds true. You reap in proportion to what you sow. So in conclusion, in case anybody gets the wrong idea of what I'm saying, We know that works can't save us. Grace alone saves us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, that we are saved. I don't want to undo all the work I just did, but I need to make that clear. What makes us different than the demons? They believed all the important things, but they can't act, they can't worship, they can't have a relationship. They're not going to serve, they're not going to sacrifice. That's what makes us different. It's our faith that changes our heart, that results in a changed life. And it isn't faith unless you depend on it for support. I see that chair I think that chair will hold me I have faith it will hold me I believe it will hold me but if I don't go and sit in the chair what have I proved it's not faith until you depend on it I really should give that much but then I won't have any money I should really serve that much I won't have any energy. I gotta forgive that person? I don't know. 
All of that. It's not faith until you depend on it for support. Let God meet you. Let God show you what he can do. We have received the gift of grace. But have we ignored the giver? Do we have evidence in our life that it is fully surrendered to his will? Are we taking up the cross daily to prove that we are his true followers? And then I just want to leave you this one final encouragement. Luke 6:38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use it, will be measured back to you. Pressed down, shaken. It's a picture of somebody trying to smash as much as possible into some kind of vessel, and it's overflowing. That's what the Lord wants to do for us. Come to the Lord with a thimble, and he'll pack it to overflowing. Come to the Lord with a five-gallon bucket, he will do the same. Come to the Lord with a pickup truck, and then see what the Lord will do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and uh, Lord, I ask you to use your Holy Spirit and your word to do your work. Lord, we thank you and praise you, Father, for this time we get to worship you. We do want to lift up the Israel team and ask that you would protect and bless them as they're walking where you walked and seeing the history that we read about in your scripture. Lord, we ask you to bless this time and this fellowship, and we pray these things in Jesus' name.